Tales, and this is Lit Century, a podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. My co-host today is Isaac Butler, subbing in for Sandra Newman. He's the co-author of The World Only Spins Forward, and his new book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, will be coming out in February of next year. Our guest is Miranda Popke, author of the novel Topics of Conversation. And our year is 1960. We'll be talking about Superman Comes to the Supermarket, uh, Norman Mailer's essay first published in Esquire magazine about Kennedy at the 1960 Democratic National Convention. The piece addresses the feeling among Democrats that there was some sea change happening within their politics and that they didn't yet understand it, uh, that someone like Kennedy was winning um, and not Adlai Stevenson who represented the old ways of their party. so much for joining us today. So Isaac had this idea that we were going to talk to you about Mailer because anyone who's read your book, Topics of Conversation, will remember this kind of stunning chapter that you have toward the middle, where your protagonist is watching a video on YouTube that is fictional interview with a fictional party guest at the party where Norman Mailer stabbed his wife, uh, Adele Morales. And she describes, this is in your book, she spends a lot of time on her outfit. She spends a lot of time on, well, I guess a lot of people's outfits um, and a lot of time on everyone's kind of relative status at the party and what all the various relationships are, uh, why everyone's there, what they're thinking. And then when the stabbing actually happens, everyone is very quick to cover it up and to lie about what happened and to protect Mailer at all costs. And it takes quite a while for the people around this character, this woman, to even admit that it was a stabbing and not that she fell on some broken glass or anything like that. And the idea that the only person who would help her among all of these white people at the party is a black man who helped her actually get to an ambulance and thus saved her life. What just briefly, like what led you to writing about that incident? Well, first I want to say thank, thank you for having me on this, uh, on this podcast, really have enjoyed listening to it. Um, so honored to be a guest. I now cannot remember exactly what led me down the rabbit hole of remember the time that Norman Mailer stabbed his wife and very nearly killed her. And then for several decades, no one cared to discuss this at all, except in the context of, yeah, his second wife was sort of annoying. And as a result, she was stabbed. Um, a mailer, so, mailer involved stabbing incident. Yeah, exactly. Um, some of the more outrageous material, factual material that I found about the, the, the incident the attempted murder did not make it into the book because it was too awful to be believed. People writing, you know, notes to themselves on letters from Mailer saying something like, well, she really deserved it because she provoked him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think it is worth noting that 
So the the account that the fictional party guest gives in the novel, specifically the the piece of it that is this um, unidentified black man who helps her out of the apartment and into an ambulance, that's taken from Adele Morales Mailer's memoir, which is called The Last Party. And other sources do not describe her exit from the party post-stabbing in this way, but I decided that that was the account that I was going to rely on and base my recreation on. It certainly is true that when she went to the hospital, she initially, under pressure, told doctors that she had fallen on broken glass because she did not want to implicate her husband. She later very generously refused to sign the papers that would have sent him to Bellevue because she did not, again, this was under pressure. She did not want to mark him as someone mentally imbalanced. Although clearly he was to a certain extent mentally imbalanced because again, he stamped his wife and like really, really did sort of nearly, nearly kill her. Um, so, and, and eventually she ended up withdrawing her uh, complaint. Um, and this, the state ended up going, you know, pursuing the prosecution regardless, but she did not want him to be prosecuted. I think she was to a certain extent anxious about the blowback that there might be for her. Um, so what one other thing that is interesting is I don't know exactly when Superman comes to the supermarket was written, but certainly would have been some point after um, the 1960 presidential convention. And if I'm remembering correctly, um, I mean, it did come out in 1960. It was, it was right then. Yeah. yeah. So this would have been, you know, just a few months before he stabbed his wife because he stabbed his wife Um uh, in November of 1960, he was the party was allegedly a launch for his first abortive mayoral campaign. He ran for mayor later in the 60s um, and and ran sort of an actual campaign. Um, his attempt to launch his mayoral campaign was somewhat thwarted by the stabbing, the the, mur- the attempted murder. <laughs> yeah, it is so annoying when you want to run for mayor, but then you stab your wife and you almost kill her. And so you sort of have to deal with that instead. It's very annoying. I, I think there's some, some markets in which that wouldn't be a, a problem today. Yeah. You, you know, like uh, you could just brazen it out. Yeah. You just, yeah. You could, you could stab your wife on fifth Avenue and no one yeah, would like you just be that. like, this is cancel culture. That's that's, <laughs> you just got to say those magic words and then you can get away with stabbing whomever you want. <laughs> I, I think of it. That, like you said, uh, Miranda, that this was not really part of his public image. It didn't seem like it really mattered to anyone until it did. And now at this point, it seems to me like it's a pretty major part of his legacy. The question like, who reads Mailer? No one. Not no one, because we do. And part of us reading it is through the lens of this is also a person who stabbed his wife. But that question of like, how good does work have to be for the stabbing to not be the main part of your legacy? Um, 
I was just saying before you came on the um, recording, Miranda, I was saying it's kind of the question of crime and punishment also. Like, how how good does your art have to be for you to be allowed to just, like, murder one or two people? <laughs> and that's not the main thing about you, like, that you're permitted. Yeah, I would say your art has to be pretty good. Um, and... It is interesting how long it took for people to decide that Mailer's art was not quite good enough. Yeah. I was in college between 2005 and 2009, and I read Mailer in college for classes, not his fiction. I think his fiction has, I think his fiction fell out of favor more quickly uh, than his nonfiction, but I, I read essays uh, of his for, I think, possibly two classes. And I don't remember that discussion being contextualized with this particular crime. I think it's fair to say that his image was as a, as a forceful personality. Um, he was a, an amateur boxer. He, <laughs> he once punched Gore Vidal in the face and Gore Vidal came back with the, the best. It's the best comeback of all time. The best comeback. Once again, words fail Norman. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I think that there, there is a sense in which the stabbing was um, contextualized or, or sort of subsumed into this pre-existing understanding of Mailer as a sort of man of the, a sort of rough guy who was, yes, he was a literary man, but he was also, you know, out there with, with the people sort of mixing it up and getting um, bitten by Rip Torn. Exactly. Yeah. Getting bitten by Rip Torn or didn't he bite? Did a, he bite Rip Torn? Yeah, no, yeah, I think sorry. he bit a piece of uh, he bit a piece of Rip Torn's ear off. Which, right. I mean, the man's name was Rip Torn. He was he was asking for it. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it sort of got it sort of got um, subsumed into that larger sort of aesthetic that was associated um, with Mailer and. I think it was only after he died in the early 2000s that there was uh, a reassessment. And I think the, the, his biographer who is, um, well, he's, he's been, there have been several biographies written of him, but I believe his authorized biographer is a man named J. Michael Lennon. Um, bizarrely um <laughs> we of course know another author whose name is shockingly similar j robert um, Lennon. Um, also a friend of the podcast who is on our um our unconsoled episode yes um great episode uh but he said in an interview so he he sort of said in an interview something that dismissed the idea that Mailer had ever been violent in his life as opposed to in his prose. This happened, must have been the fault. This must have been around when I started 
writing that that bit. Um, so it would have been fall of 2017. Um, and this prompted like a certain amount of outrage on the internet. And I think that that was like, there was a little moment on Twitter when everyone was like, remember how Norman Mailer stabbed his wife? And then people stopped talking about it because again, no one really cares about Mailer anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that that's kind of one of the questions that I had about this essay as I was reading it is he has all of these, let's just say forceful, maybe not violent, but forceful rhetorical flourishes. And he's asserting a narrative about this um, Kennedy nomination. But is he right? Do you guys think he's right? I, I do actually think that there's a lot to his argument that unfortunately, like he keeps getting in the way of it. Do you know what I mean? But like the bare bones of the argument, which is that we're emerging from the 50s, the time of the mass man and the great pressure to conform. And it is very hard for us today to understand what that era, what that what the conformity culture of the 50s was like and how powerful that force was that like wearing jeans was a problem. You know what I mean? Like, 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 um, so we've just, we're emerging from that at the exact moment that now everyone has a television. So it's the first widely televised election. And so we are now not really electing a president. We're casting the actor who's going to play the role of president in our national drama. Right. And the reason the part where it gets weird is the very end where he's like, and the reason to support Kennedy is because he is a mythic figure of image. There's actually no real difference between him and Nixon. But the important thing is that we will no longer have to care about public policy or what the government actually does, because that is drudgery. And he will finally cause us to confront you know, the image of America, like the ending goes in a bit of a weird way, but the actual observation he's making that like, we are casting an actor to play the president and we are emerging out of this decade of conformity right when everyone's watching television. That part I think is a really spot on, um, observation. And then there's sort of like the rest of it, all the kind of maximalist observations he's making in the midst of it that I think sometimes can get in the way of seeing that central thread that I think is actually very useful. Um, and then there's also the second argument he's asserting, because if you read this in his collection, as all three of us did uh, from advertisements for myself, there's this weirdly dismissive tone he takes to this piece, which is like, actually, I just wrote this as propaganda to get Kennedy elected which I find completely unconvincing because I'm like, this isn't good propaganda. If that's what you were trying to do, this is like a complete failure. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, that's, that's, that's how I feel about it, that, that there's a central like thing that he has noticed. Um, and I think one of the reasons why he's noticed it is that he's a very active part of the actor studio. And so I think that's part of why he's noticed this about Kennedy. Um, that I think is really great. And then he keeps getting in the way of it by doing shit like, I interviewed Kennedy, but all that mattered to me is that he liked the the Deer Park. His own book. His own book, yeah. All he liked, like, all I care about is that he's clearly read my books. Um, you know, like, there's that shit. But the central thing, I think, is actually a kind of really astute and surprising and interesting observation. Yeah, he has, um, he talks about the, the two rivers theory that he has. And there's the um, there's there's the river that we can all see that is the the course of of public events, and then there's this underground river which is all of our passions and our roiling emotions. And 
somehow Kennedy is giving all of these desires um, a place to rest in his person. Um, I'm, I guess I'm not sure I would agree with you, Isaac, that he's saying that it no longer matters what the policy is going to be. It, it almost seems like he doesn't know what the policies could be because this figure of myth, this sort of concentration of desire is going to be president. So his, his, his policy proposals are very middling because that's sort of what you have to propose in order to actually get elected. But who knows what could happen if he were to be elected because he's essentially not He's, he's not the kind of politician we've seen. He is driven by American emotion and American passion in this particular way, um, such that he could drive, in a policy way, he could drive the, the country in an, a, a quite unexpected direction. Right, right. Yeah. I think you and I are actually talking about the same moment in the, mm. the, the essay, which is pretty late in it, where he says counting by, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I probably <laughs> overstated my case, much like Norman Mailer does. Um, counting by the full spectrum of complete right to absolute left, the political differences, meaning between the parties and candidates, would be minor. But what would be not at all minor was the power of each man to radiate his appeal into some fundamental depths of the American character. One would have an inkling at last if the desire of America was for drama or stability, for adventure or monotony. And obviously the former category is Kennedy, the latter category is Nixon. And this, this appeal to the psychic direction America would now choose for itself was the element most promising about this election, for it gave the possibility that the country might be able finally to rise above the deadening verbiage of its issues, its politics, its jargon, and live again by an image of itself. It's that last part that I was kind of thinking about because we read that now and we go, no, 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 no. <laughs> let's go. Let's let's talk a little bit more about like what you're actually going to do for people and what you actually want to do because we actually have lived through the world that only going by images has wrought. Right now we're like, well, maybe we should get back to the drudgery of talking about talking about policy, you know? Um, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's, that, that was the section that I was thinking of, right. That it's like, well, you know, at least something will have changed instead of more of the same, you know, to put this in the kind of Obama vocabulary, because it's hard, I think, not to think about Obama, uh, when talking and Trump, the yeah. way that, that he's talking about the people at the convention being, uneasy and even depressed because they don't understand what's happening to their party. They don't understand how doing the right thing according to all of their rules is, which is what Adlai Stevenson is doing is no longer enough to, right. To defeat this guy who's coming in and embodying this kind of TV energy, which I think that in different ways, both Obama and uh, Trump and to some extent, Clinton also all had that sense that that they were somehow popular because of that second river, not because of the the top river. You mean Bill Clinton, right? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Because because it seems to me that, that with... I don't agree about Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry. What, what, I should have. What, 
Well, no, no, but I just, I just mean because with both Obama and Trump, Hillary is Adlai Stevenson in both cases, yes. right? Yes. It's like, hey, I'm over here. I've done the right thing. I'm smart. I've got good ideas. What the fuck, guys? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like that. You know, that dynamic has actually played out a lot. Well, I also actually wanted to talk about how he talks about the um, that uh, Kennedy embodies like hipsterness and jazz, where this this idea that it's not just that he's tan and has uh, bright white teeth and uh, has a sort of TV actory aesthetic, but that somehow he has the power of blackness, the cool of blackness. And I think that that, that was part of the rhetoric around Bill Clinton also. Um, uh, wasn't he the, first, the quote unquote first black president? It is weird to hear that. And be like, yeah, in the 90s, we thought the closest we were going to get to a black president was William Jefferson Clinton. Right. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, then when we actually did have a black president, that was a huge amount of what was going on with Obama was about American feelings about race in all different ways. Um, there were many different crisscrossing ways that people's feelings about Obama and his family uh, were actually about more than just about him and his family. And then clearly Trump, like the, the engine behind Trump, obviously has a huge amount to do with white supremacy. And I thought it was interesting that uh, Mailer was also sounding those notes about Kennedy, because I don't think that that's in retrospect, really what Kennedy is, like how Kennedy is remembered. And I also think that he put in that thing about how civil rights is something that was a gift to black people uh, from white Americans. And I was reading that and I was thinking he chose the name Norman Mailer. It was not the name he was born with because he was born with a much more distinctly Jewish name. And to some extent, the amount that he went from very poor working class roots to where he was like going to Harvard when he was 16 and all those things. It has to do with the increase of how much um, social mobility you could get with intellectual work in the 20th century. But he's just standing there like just outside the fulcrum of that change. And he's looking at the people whose lives changed even less, not the people whose lives changed more because of the change in how intellectual work was evaluated. Well, it's also, it's also the change in what Jews are allowed to do, right? Because like after world war two, when, when Jews are allowed to take advantage of the GI bill and African-Americans are largely screwed out of it, right? You, um, you, you have this door opened to whiteness that we were allowed to kind of walk into so long as we are okay being constantly reminded we could be kicked out of it any time, right? We have this sort of conditional whiteness. Um, and I think that's like in a very important part of post-war, post-World War II Jewish identity. And you just are seeing that, you're seeing that play out in the very thing that you're describing and the thing here in this essay, which is like, uh, you know, I'm, I am, I want to take advantage of whiteness and then also pretend that I can be outside of it and critique it or not critique it or endorse it or, you know, but yeah, you know, that, that, that he had, that he's going to have this sort of strange relationship to whiteness. That's eventually going to get him in such trouble uh, with James Baldwin 
um, you know, who who's one of you know one of Baldwin's I think gr- greatest and most furious essays is about Norman Mailer, which is actually the first time I encountered the thinking of Norman Mailer was through Baldwin's blistering account of it rather than his own writing. You know, I think another trap that um, Norman Mailer sort of sets for himself and then walks into with respect to race is 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 one that I think white leftists, white liberals continue to set for themselves and then walk directly into, which is this feeling that if one has the right politics when it comes to race, then one can have, one one can venture a more daring or on the one hand daring, on the other hand, possibly racist opinions. Like, when I was so I, when I was researching this, you know, I was researching um, Mailer and and his life, and specifically his marriage to his second wife. In her memoir, she talks about his relationship with James Baldwin. They spent time together. Um, he also was arrested at least once, and part of it had to do with him trying to. Uh, him signing a petition that would have allowed Billie Holiday to to get a cabaret license. She had been she was basically prevented from earning a living because uh, she would she was not allowed to have a cabaret license. So I think that there's also this sense that Mailer has that he has the right politics. So he can enter a conversation about race and have a conversation with you know he can have a conversation with James Baldwin about race on the same, like as, as if he too were a black man, but he's right. He's, he's not is, right. is something that's really key and which he does not seem to realize. Yeah. It's like the I'm down fallacy, fallacy, right? It's like, I'm down. Right. I could just, I could talk about this stuff. Right. It's yeah. Like, uh, and it's know. like, yeah, I mean like, yeah, you, you can, you certainly can talk about and white people should be like thinking about race and talking about race. Um, but you have to approach it. I I mean, I think it's important to approach it with an understanding that you're coming at this conversation from position as a white person. And I think the second that you get in there and you're like, well, I have all, I have all the right opinions already. So I can sort of weigh in here as if, um, race is affecting me in the same way as it is affecting a black person, then it's like, okay, like, no, actually, like, I'm just going to close that door and just slowly back out of here. <laughs> Do the uh, Homer Simpson retreat into yeah. the hedge. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think that that's actually a big part of why, even though in some ways I think that this essay and the narrative that he's proposing there really is the narrative that people considered around Kennedy for at least, you know, the 50 years following the essay coming out, like, what does it mean that Kennedy was elected? What, to what degree is this a changing of the guard? Like all those things, I think people largely did agree with Mailer about what he's saying there and he was saying it first. So that's, you know, that's a big deal. At the same time, the, the amount that he's refusing to consider that anyone he perceives as less powerful than him might actually have an even better perspective on what's going on. And that might include any of the women, any of the people of color. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, but I also think, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get the sense from reading this essay that 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 Norman Mailer feels that anyone other than him of any level of power has, has a better, you know, like like he he is very invested in his own point of view and its uh rightness, it seems to me, in a way yeah. that goes even beyond that. Do you know what I mean? I I agree. I, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to mix up my feelings about how he describes Eleanor Roosevelt and his sure. toward the women and the convention in general. Like, the uh, yes, that was, that was a part that I wrote yeesh <laughs> with the women in the convention, the, the each candidates, different kinds of women as a symbol of. Uh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's both of its time and also kind of like, yeah, this is the thing that you don't understand about what's going on around you. Right is your understanding of anyone who is farther away from the levers of power, but that their lives change way more with each of these alterations. And that the fact that he's so focused on the fulcrum of like people whose lives are changed. Sorry. I hope this metaphor even makes any sense. I'm like waving my hands around, but I don't know if it actually does. I think that he's looking at people whose lives are changing the least with these changes and who maybe have the least skin in the game in some ex- to some extent and is trying to understand what's going on from these very small changes comparatively in their lives when he's completely ignoring the significance to everyone who's sort of behind him on the power scale. Right. They're, they're object, not subject, right? It's like, how can I use this person to describe this thing? Which I think gets us back to like the idea that the policy differences are really negligible, which in some ways they are because the parties are, le- are much less polarized than they are now. But then another way you're like negligible to whom, you know, who, which, which policies and in, in what ways is that difference actually negligible? Yeah. Right. And his, his, he claims at, at least one point um, that there's the only way that the, the sort of underground desires and passions and roilings of the American psyche can sort of burst into prominence, can come to the fore, is if this kind of Superman figure, this hero emerges and is elected. And that has to happen first, and then maybe some policy changes will follow. Um, and, and I think it's, it's actually quite easy to make a case that the reverse is true, yeah. that if all of your material needs are being met, if you have the civil rights that should be uh, granted to you as a, a human person, and if you are able to vote and eat at the lunch counter of your choice, that you might be able to with those policy changes, maybe the desires are different and they can elevate a different kind of person. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that he is interested in. Right. Right. Totally. I think you're totally right, Miranda. And to me, you know, because I'm about to, I think, finish the final draft of this, this book about the method that I'm writing. What's so funny to me is how like, that's just clearly informed by his being part of the actor studio, which I feel like is the secret river running underneath this essay like at one point he gets a quote from Shelley Winters the reason why he has a quote from Shelley Winters is that she was a member of she was an extremely active member of the actor studio and he must have just pulled her aside and said 
you know, and had whatever the conversation was that was in there. But th- this, I he compares Kennedy to Brando, right? Um, and which is a very bizarre, I think, totally, totally bizarre comparison. Except if you think about the narrative that 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 you've just said about America and apply it to the movies, because the kind of mythical understanding of the method, right, is that you have the the way movies are made, sort of starting with the code in the 30s, which is all about the surface, and there's this sort of roiling thing underneath, but we're not going to acknowledge that, we're not going to acknowledge that, we're not going to acknowledge that, and then boom, Brando comes, and he like you know, like, like a God, he like bursts through the crust of the earth and lets all the magma out. Right. And that's what a streetcar named desire is. And, uh, the wild one and, and movies like that, which is sort of true. I mean, you know, um, uh, but it's more true of Brando, I think, than it, than it was of Kennedy, even though I'm very sympathetic to this argument. Clearly, I like this argument he's making, but it is very interesting that I think like only someone who is at the actor's studio every week would see that about Kennedy or would bother making that argument about Kennedy, regardless of how true it is, right? And that, that's part of what I find so fascinating is all of these threads are, are, are sort of coming together in this piece of various, you know, like aspects of Mailer's own life and of what's going on in pop culture, right as we're having our first like big pop culture president. Because oh. Kennedy is kind of like a movie star. He wanted Warren Beatty to play him in a biopic of his life after he became president. And when he was, you know, and his mistress was a, was a move was Marilyn Monroe was a movie star. So, you know, he is this first like pop culture movie. He became this first pop culture movie star president. That's in a weird way. What he really became. Mailer has that point that um, a man running for president is different from the man who is president. Right. And the man who is president is like, or running for president is like, I'm the hero who's going to do all these things. And the man who, became president was like, actually, I'm just want to be a movie star. Yeah. Um, he also had a lot to do with um, changing how comic books were written specifically for political reasons. Like Troy wrote about good guys and bad guys in comic books um, and the, sort of the political meaning of those that Kennedy asked comic book writers to show people cooperating and using different strengths to achieve a common goal. So that's why like X-Men and Justice League and there are so many of them. So, so, so many of them. The Avengers. All, but yeah. And they all started between 1960 and 1964, basically. Right. Um, and it's because Kennedy asked them to. I was going to say that everything is secretly about my book also. Cause Kennedy, it turns out acclaimed ballet dancer who knew <laughs> before he had all the back trouble. I was, uh, Miranda, if you want to talk about how everything is secretly about your book, um, I always think everything is all about the changes that happened at World War One. I. I mean, I, I think everything that about the 20th century is secretly rehashing World War One. I. I, maybe, maybe this is actually a problem with me, but I don't think I don't think that, I think that most things are not, are usually not about my book. (laughs) Um, Although I do think something that I've been thinking about is how the, the mailer sort of writing style is, there are so, there are, there's, there's so much good stuff in here and it's just obscured by a morass of useless verbiage. Um, one of my, my favorite high school teacher, um, his name was Hal Hansen, is, he's still alive, he's a, still a very young man. Um, 
relatively young man. He once wrote on an essay, I will never forget this comment, an essay of mine. Um, it was it was something along the lines of this is, uh, you know, this is a great essay that unfortunately has collided with a mass of unnecessary verbiage milling about like so many hogs, the slop trough or orphans, the soup queue. Um, and then he told me that I needed to hack some fat off this sirloin. Anyway, I just want to, I <laughs> okay, so maybe he, maybe he got this like, urge also. Sorry. Overwrite. Like maybe he had the, the urge to overwrite also, cause that's a lot of metaphors. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think in retrospect, that was maybe part of the joke, but, uh, yeah, I, I want to tell Mailer to hack some fat off this sirloin, um, because, and actually, this does relate to my book because when when I'm writing, I mean both fiction and nonfiction, but especially when I'm especially when I'm writing nonfiction, it's very important to me that every sentence say something and that it be connected to the sentence that came before and also after it. And it is wild how that very, to me, basic tenet of writing is just flagrantly ignored by <laughs> um, by Norman Mailer at, at many parts. And it's this kind of sort of, this kind of um, wall of words that he erects, it's, to my mind, it's characteristic of this moment in, uh, in new journalism sort of hit him and Hunter S. Thompson and Tom Wolfe just throwing descriptive material at the reader in an attempt to overwhelm their senses such that like they're lying stunned by the side of the road and they can't tell anymore if anything that you're saying makes any sense. That's a little bit of a, a harsh criticism, but I just want to read the sentence and then you know maybe 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 listeners can e- email and let me let me know what it means. Is it the one about Los Angeles that's a page long? <laughs> Where Los Angeles is an egg roll without mustard and yeah. also a uh anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It would just be amazing if it was the same one that I had circled and been like, should you read this on air? Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, it's actually not that one. That one totally made sense to me. I also don't like Los Angeles. Like I understand what he's saying. There's no place to hide in Los Angeles. Like it's all sort of flat. And I mean, I don't eat my egg rolls with mustard. That seems like nonsense to me, but um, no, it's this sentence. America is a nation of experts without roots. Okay. We are always creating tacticians who are blind to strategy and strategists who cannot take a step. And when the culture has finished its work, the institutions handcuff the infirmity. What's the infirmity? I don't know. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) yeah so there's a lot of there's a lot of that stuff and then yeah um and there's a lot of like throat clearing about like this is what I'm going to do and this is what I was thinking about doing right it's I, I I feel like this not this essay in particular though I can remember um oh and this this says it's actually from the presidential papers, not from advertisements for myself. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's a mistake that I made when I checked advertisements for myself out of the library. Um, but I can remember reading this essay for the first time when I was 19 or 20. Um, and 
I can remember having that sort of like stunned by the side of the road reaction. But I also think that this is exactly the kind of writing that a college student, which I was, reads and is like, oh, interesting. And then their professors are like, no, you can't write like this. You know, but, you, you but can't what if more throw was words more. at the problem. <laughs> What, what if more was more? What if I could throw words at the problem? That's the tantalizing prospect. I mean, it's weird because, you know, you're right, though, that, you know, there's also, you know, if you're to include our our, our pigs here, if you're like a, a, a truffle pig, you know, you can find like, like uh, just to pick one at random that I underlined, Johnson gave you all of himself. He was a political animal. He breathed like an animal, sweated like one. You knew his mind was entirely absorbed with the compendium of political fact and maneuver. Kennedy, uh, let me, Kennedy seemed at times like a young professor whose manner was adequate for the classroom, but whose mind was off in some intricacy of the PhD thesis he was writing. Like, that's like a great, like the semicolon comes in the right place to balance those ideas. The, the images move in like a very pleasurable way. You know exactly what he means about both of those men and their contrasts and styles in this like perfect thing. And he's right. He's right about both and of them. Yeah, 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 and totally. He specifically identifies something that is going to be a problem for Johnson when Johnson becomes president, which is that everyone can tell when he's lying. And he right. lies with such frequency and with such impassioned conviction, impassioned and completely um, transparent, um, false conviction that very quickly, especially when it comes to Vietnam, no one believes anything he says anymore. Um, and it's it's interesting to see that, to see that Mailer is picking up on that sort of just at the moment that Johnson is becoming a national figure when this quality might not be something that everyone was noticing. That's really interesting, Miranda. That's really interesting. I, I thought that that was such a good description of Kennedy. I I hadn't picked up on how good it was of, of Johnson in, in the way that you did, Miranda, but um, I thought that that was such a good description of Kennedy. I thought it contrasted with the one that he does later, which I don't trust that I have my notes um, organized well enough to bother finding it right this minute, but it's when he's talking about him as more of like a Brando figure where he's kind of talking about him sort of changing in different circumstances. Like in some circumstances, he seems like this, and then you sort of see him in this other light when he's in a different context. And I was thinking, I mean, I've never been in a room with Kennedy. I don't know, but um, it, it seemed less true to me. It seemed like Kennedy seems very Kennedy, like all the time. Um, and that description of him as a, a professor who's actually thinking about his uh, PhD thesis, um, that seemed more astute and the other one seemed more like a reach that he's trying to attach um, this quality that he independently admires in actors. I mean, the thing, speaking of performing, that this text is performing or embodying or whatever highfalutin critical theory language we want to use is this thing of like seeing a world event and then searching for the pop cultural reference through which it can be interpreted. Right. It's like, I can only like, like Mailer is doing this thing that is now all we do. We all do this all the time. It's actually very hard not to do it now, but in, in part because of this election, right. That's coming at this moment where like everyone has a TV set or everyone can go get 
access to one or look at one, not everyone, but you know what I mean, um, that it's like, I have to find the pop culture that will allow me to interpret this, the performances, the actors, this person's Charlie Chaplin, this person's Gary Cooper, this person's John Wayne, this person's Marlon Brando. Right. And we see that with like, you know, my, my, my pet theory is that Obama cannot be elected without the West wing, without the TV show, the West wing, because it gives us this like mythical idea of, of Bartlett and his young team that Obama kind of walks into and uses, you know? So, so it's just this thing of like, where we are actually all doing this thing. Um, uh, and so it's, it's fascinating to watch it happen in an essay that's, you know, 50, almost 60 years old. Right. And is over 60 years old. Excuse me. That's, Oh, haha, I'm older than I think the, in this essay that is, that is uh, over 60 years old now. Um, because you can see it more clearly because the cultural references are of its time are dated to us in heavy quotes. Yeah. I was thinking about the, the sound of the maximalism of the prose and thinking that it reminds me of the children's books that I read that were from the seventies and that they were influenced by Victorian prose. Um, and now when I look at them and think about, you know, giving them to children in my life and I'm just like, this is not readable. This is, um, these sentences are like a page long each and they all have 30 semicolons, but it felt more natural closer to the seventies. Um, I actually wonder if our current era of internet writing will feel like this, that it'll feel mannered and maximalist where when, you know, there was a personal essay boom on the internet, there was a, a way of writing a tone and a, a style of sentences that I think can be alienating if you're not part of that. I think there's a I think there's a mannered tone that you can only tell is mannered and is not just naturalistic uh, when you're outside of it. And I think that this probably felt very naturalistic at the time. Or at least exciting, right? It's like like energetic. Yeah, I mean, there's there's something like not to use another jazz metaphor, but there's something kind of like really aggressive bebop to it of like I am going to play like like you know. Uh, uh, um, I'm going to play just blistering amount of notes in this solo. And it's like, sometimes you're getting the great parts of bebop in this essay. And sometimes you're getting the not great parts of bebop in this essay. It seems to me, I mean, you know, like there is that whole generation of um, that, that would called the hysterical realists, right. Which were the sort of late aught, late nineties, early aughts maximalists um, that I think there's a river that flows from them to mail. Although I find there were, I find the work of, you know, David Foster Wallace and Zadie Smith and Jonathan Lethem and early Salman Rushdie and stuff like that, far more pleasurable and successful than this actually. But, you know, it, it does have a similar kind of maximalist. I'm going to do everything I can with this sentence. I'm going to leave it all on the field as they say in sports, right. Uh, with, with each paragraph that, that you feel here. I just didn't, you know, like, uh, lots of the writing of this piece I actually quite loved and was taken with, but I didn't, I couldn't always how do I put this? What felt undisciplined about it 
to Miranda, I think, not to, if I can paraphrase your point, right, is that like the transitions are missing sometimes. You're like, what is this even referring to or where is this going? And to me, I, I like the undisciplined nature of it was like, I don't know to what purpose you're using this particular device. Like, why is the sentence about Los Angeles being a hot dog, uh, uh, an egg roll with no mustard? Why is that actually half a page long? Like, why is that? Why of all the ideas is that one given a half page long sentence? Like, what is it about that that made you want to load it up with all of this overwhelming verbiage and like throw it at me like a, like a you know, a big ball of trash, you know? And, so, and, and uh, as opposed to any of these other ideas, you know, like, like the reason why a sentence is the length it is, is completely mysterious to me within this piece a lot of the time. Well, I think what he's doing is, it's interesting the connection that, that Catherine made to the personal essay boom on the internet, because one thing that is stunning about this essay is that it appeared in Esquire magazine, and I cannot imagine at Esquire magazine letting anyone go this long on any subject for any reason ever again, mm-hmm. especially not in print. Right. John Jeremiah Sullivan was like the last person allowed to do this, right? And no one ever will again. Yeah. And I think he really, I love, I love his writing, but I think he did to a certain extent, like take that to its logical extreme and sort of drive, drive that car off a bridge that had no end, just sort of into the ocean. And it, it seems to me that the, the reason that you can't tell why a sentence is, is very long or very short or what, what purpose this style is being put to is because the purpose is that it's, it pleases Norman Mailer. Right. And I think the thing that this, this shares, and I think Norman Mailer, it pleases me that Norman Mailer would probably be so offended by this comparison, but the, the, the sort of blogging style of the early, of the early aughts and the personal essay boom that it fed into was also very much about, well, we're on the internet and you don't have, I don't have a, uh, you know, I, I don't have a word limit. I can go as long as I want and I can use a really conversational style because that is um, the style in which my, my, you know, readers have already gotten to know me. And I think that that's sort of what Mailer's doing here, except we're in a completely different cultural moment. So he's allowed to do it for, I don't know, $4 a word in Esquire magazine. And he's like, yeah, I'm getting so many of those $4. I'm putting so many words down on this page. Yeah. Yeah. This is why my blog is password protected and I never allow anyone to read it. Uh, You know, my blog from the early aughts, even though it helped me become a writer, it's for exactly this reason. Right. Part of what was so interesting, because I'll admit that like reading this sometime, I mean, I wrote, yeesh or yikes or oy vey many times in, in the piece. And then also underlying things. It was like amazing is that, you know, for, I, I think the interesting tension that, that made it pleasurable is not the right word, but exciting to read in a weird way is that like, like you can't fully dismiss it. Do you know what I mean? There's all sorts of things wrong with this piece. And then every now and then there's like a, a hard diamond of a sentence or like a brilliant observation or whatever. And the fact there's a weird thing that like 
it, it, it becomes more interesting in a weird way because it's in this sea of garbage. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, or, or, you know, I would love an essay that was just all the crystalline moments. Don't get me wrong, but there's something exciting, at least for the purposes of a podcast in which we talk about literature, um, that you're getting both of those in the same package gives it this weird, I don't know, charge this weird tension. Yeah. It's like when, when someone you really dislike makes a good point and very much like that. that. <laughs> when that the point is that much more profound and sort of sticky because it's coming from this horrid, unacceptable source. Um, this is this is on my mind actually because it's um, I was reading a novel last night in which a, a man of truly truly unparalleled repugnance is occasionally given the opportunity to say something that is obviously true and pertinent to the female protagonist's life. Mm. And it is, I think, a difficult trick to pull off in fiction, but it's also something that I recognize from life. You know, the person that you have muted on Twitter suddenly gets retweeted into your feed and it's a good point and you're filled with self-hatred, but also you have to recognize the validity of whatever it is, or, you know, it, it'll happen. in when we see each other in person again, I'm sure it will happen in person again too. someone who you find to be basically idiotic says a sentence and you're like, God damn it. That person right. has an excellent point. So, so what you're saying is that our anthology of collected Norman Mailer writing should be heartbreaking. The worst person, you know, just made a great point. <laughs> the work of Norman Mailer. Yeah. And then having that picture from Clickhole. Yeah, it's a Clickhole headline. It's a Clickhole headline. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He would be so mad. We've now compared him to uh, (laughs) versatile essayists, uh, early aughts bloggers, and a Clickhole headline. Right, that was our episode on Norman Mailer. Thank you to Isaac and Miranda, and as always, Adam Bear for our music. Thank you also to the people at Literary Hub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, as Miranda suggested, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. <laughs> <laughs>